This is Echo Zoe Radio, episode 54 for October 2012, with guest Eric Bargerhoff, Misused Scripture. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. Hello, I'm Andy Olson, proprietor of EchoZoe.com. Thanks for listening. This is episode 54 for October 2012. For this episode, my guest is Eric Bargerhuff, pastor of Clearwater Community Church in Clearwater, Florida, and author of the book, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. Having written articles on the same subject at Echozoe.com, I took to the book right away and knew that Eric would be an excellent guest to interview for the show. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a comment or would like to contribute a question to an upcoming interview, leave us a voicemail. You can do so by calling area code 425-906-4908. Whenever possible, we'll announce upcoming topics and guests so that you can offer questions for the show. You can find those announcements on the website or on our social media sites. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or add us to your Google Plus circles to get the latest news and announcements from Echo Zoe Ministries. On the subject of the voicemail line and social media current plans are to interview Sandy Simpson of Apologetics Coordination Team, who was first on the show last November for the next episode. The recording date has not yet been set, but if you're hearing this in time and have a question for Sandy regarding the New Apostolic Reformation, we'd love to hear it. For show notes to go along with this episode, you can visit echozoe.com slash 54. You'll find an outline of the discussion as well as a list of scriptures referenced. With all of that out of the way, Here's my interview with Eric Bargerhoff. Welcome, Eric. Uh, thanks so much for taking some time and uh, coming on with me to, to talk about your book, uh, The Most Misused Verses of the, in the Bible. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be with you this evening. So what I thought was interesting, I, I came across your book and really took to it quickly because as a lot of my listeners know, I, I, a couple of years ago I started writing on some, actually some of the very same verses that you've got. And... Uh, Seem very uh, poignant, you know, very uh, perfect, like a perfect fit. Before we get into the book and the verses, um, I'd like to start with just getting to know who you are and uh, talk about your ministry and what inspired you to write the book. And Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, I was born and raised in the Midwest uh, in a small little country church out in the middle of the cornfields of Indiana. And... Uh, was fortunate enough to be raised in a Christian home. My parents were both believers, and um, we we grew up singing hymns and and living uh, a life on kind of in a small community. Um, graduating with eighty people um, was led to Christ by my own mother uh, when I was a young boy, and um, really grew I think the most when I got to college. Um, when I started to really get serious uh, about finding and living God's will for my life. And it was in that period of time that I actually sensed a call to go into the ministry back in uh, the freshman, sophomore year of college. And, um, of course, this was confirmed by a lot of the uh, people that were mature Christian leaders that knew me, that uh, I had been learning from. They had pointed out some of those uh, unique skills and gifts that they felt were suited for ministry. And so just through prayer and discernment and uh, the wise counsel of godly people, I felt uh, just a genuine call to go into the ministry. So after that, um, went into uh, college campus ministry while I also did a Master of Divinity degree and and uh, got married, moved to Illinois, um, served in other ministry contexts, uh, pastored a few churches, uh, went then afterwards to do a, a doctoral degree, uh, a Ph.D. In, in theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and uh, would have the privilege of being 
taught by some of the fantastic faculty and staff there at that at that school and uh still remained in ministry contacts pastoral ministry and then for the last 7 years I have been serving as the senior pastor uh in Clearwater Community Church in Clearwater Florida and uh so through the course of that uh part of the journey of going to school all those years and serving in ministry you become very familiar uh, with the idea of writing and uh, and publishing things and and just in my own experiences in the church, you know, you kind of latch on to various experiences here and there. And one of the things that that has stood out through my years in ministry is um, the necessity of interpreting the Bible carefully and applying it appropriately. And of course, I think those of us who were raised in the church have often understood that there are certain verses that we hear more than others that can be pulled out of context and used in ways that perhaps were not originally designed to be used in that way. And I think that that's part of the impetus behind this behind this book as, as I wrote the book, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. It takes some of the most popularly misused verses, and, and, and it takes a chapter for each one, so it's not as if the, you have to read the book from start to finish all the way through in one sitting, or or that it's continuous all the way through. There's individual chapters that deal with separate individual verses, and so they're their own entities in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I take those verses that are often misused and, and then talk a little bit about how they have been misused. And then I write the proper context of the verse. And and oftentimes that's what's very enlightening mm-hmm. for many for many people is that wow, oh I never really understood that verse that way because you have to read what's behind and before um a particular verse in order to get the full context. And of course this is one of the principles in biblical interpretation that every uh, student of the Bible has to be able to understand up front is that context is everything with regard to how we understand um, the original author's intent and how it was uh, to be understood by the original listeners and how they applied it in their life. And uh, and it's through that that we can extract the timeless principles that can still be applied to us today. So that's a little bit of a background mm-hmm. of who I am and, and how this book came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to talk a little bit, you've already started, but I'd like to talk a little bit about hermeneutics and proper reading and understanding of God's Word. You, you pointed out one very important thing and something I learned in my own writing on, on some, of the, some of these very same verses is just reading, you know, I, my general rule of thumb is start with a chapter, reading a, right. a chapter. And, and if the verse you're talking about is at the very beginning of chapter, maybe it helps to read the chapter beforehand as well. Uh, well, I think that in the general sense, it's it's so significant for us to understand um, the whole story, you know, because the mistake is made even in our daily lives where we can maybe overhear a part of a conversation, mm-hmm. but not but not hear the whole conversation and draw conclusions based on just what we've heard, or or we can hear a snippet from scripture. And we think, oh, well, that might fit this situation. So we look into a circumstance that may not even match the original circumstances of the Scripture itself, but we we pluck it out and throw it into it because it seems to fit. It seems to fit a situation that we want it to use it for. And in that say, in that way, Scripture is almost, uh, can I even say, manipulated, mm-hmm. and can and can be manipulated to to say something totally contrary to what it originally meant. And so that's why it's so necessary for us to read the whole big picture, uh, to understand that at at the sentence level, the paragraph level, you know, the chapter level, the book level. And even understanding what the general themes of the Bible are pertaining to the issues that surface out of a particular verse. Right. Well, I know um, I'm really eager to jump right into verses. That's kind of the the fun part of doing something like this. And sure. uh, I'm sure listeners are, are thinking the same thing. I want to start with, I, I have asked people on social media and whatnot in the past, uh, just throwing out the question, what is the most misused verse that you've ever come across? And it seems that consistently the answer I get back is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. So I'd mm. like to start with that. 
And uh, I'll read, uh, you wrote on Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. I'd like to read right. that real quick, and then we'll talk about that verse, or that passage. Sure. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will come up, call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. Well, that verse is obviously a great promise, and especially when you read it even now, it just resonates with the human spirit that that God has a plan. And I believe that even in all other aspects of how I've studied Scripture, I've you can affirm, even in other places, that God truly does have a plan for his people. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that in the general sense, but this is a specific situation that's being addressed here in Jeremiah 29. Um, Jeremiah is writing a letter to the faithful exiles that have gone into exile into Babylon. And he's writing this uh, on the cusp of going into 70 years of exile. And of course, Jeremiah himself was distraught over this. He knew that God was just in sending uh, the nation of Judah, in this particular case, into exile, uh, because they had followed other gods. They had disobeyed the word of the Lord. They had prostituted themselves with with all kinds of pagan tribes that surrounded them. And, and of course, this was part of their judgment for their sin, was that they would be carried out of the promised land, off into exile by the king of Babylon. And so on the cusp of a traumatic, horrible experience that was happening to God's people, uh, Jeremiah wrote this letter um, to those who were already there into exile, to encourage them that God still had a plan, a plan that would be realized for them and it'd be realized 70 years from now, of course, because they were going to go through this 70-year exile of hard labor, and many wouldn't even survive the trip. Um, and But this was a promise for a future generations, future generation of Israelites who would come out of exile and be returned later back to the promised land. So this verse was not even a verse that could have been realized in its own day and age to the original recipients of the letter, because this would have been a promise for their their children or their grandchildren. And so one of the things that we can't do is say, okay, this promise means that I'm going to have, you know, as the common phrase is, my best life now, mm-hmm. because... Because really, it isn't about that. It's about a future promise for a specific generation of Israelites. Now, that's not to say that as Christians today, we can't look at that passage and say, well, yeah, God has a plan. Of course he does. But the plan that is talked about there for prosperity, for wealth, you know, for, for, for some of the ideas that are there, promise not to harm you, to give you hope in a future... Those are true for us in the general sense, that God has a plan for blessing for us. But what's happened is that we've Americanized this promise, and we've almost taken it out of its context and said, okay, God's plan for me today, right now, is to prosper me. And it's going to prosper me in a way in which I have defined prosperity for my life. He's He's going to bless me. He has plans not to harm me, to give me a hope and a future, and that future is going to be a great future that's going to look a lot like the American dream. It's not going to have a whole lot of suffering. It's going to be, you know, one of these kinds of imaginary worlds that we have created in our head and that we think we deserve right here and now. And then we take this verse and we almost hold God hostage that, that he has to to make our life look like what we think this verse says it should look like. Mm-hmm. And and what happens is that oftentimes many Christians can become disillusioned with God when the theme throughout the entire New Testament at times is the Christian who will suffer. And this world is not our home. And, and of course, you know, the Hebrew writers gave us a long list of heroes of the faith of the old times in the Old Testament where they themselves didn't even realize their dreams, so to speak, in this present life, but waited for a better country, a life that was to come, you know, or they would be included with us as uh, in the kingdom, in, in the life to come. And so I think that we have to be very careful about how we use this verse. But it doesn't mean that we can't say, well, 
God doesn't have a plan for us, because he certainly does, and that's affirmed mm-hmm. elsewhere in Scripture, and he certainly does bring prosperity to our life, the spiritual blessings and all the riches that we have uh, in the grace of God that's found in Christ, and, and even the hope that we have as Christians, of he- the hope of heaven, the hope of eternal life, and that that eternal life begins the moment we believe. Mm-hmm. And so there is some real truths to that that still apply to us today, but we ought to be careful about how we've Americanized that verse and tried to apply it wrongly. Right. We want to, if we're ever going to take a verse and apply it to our own lives, we should take a step back and make sure that any Christian at any time in any place could likewise take that verse and apply it to their life. And so we look at brothers and sisters in China and North Korea and uh, heavily persecuted areas and, and dire poverty. And would that understanding of that verse apply to them as well? Correct. And I think that the answer to that would probably be no for those that are losing their heads in Uzbekistan and in other places mm-hmm. for being Christians, you know. And and I think that we have to be very careful that we don't brand a certain type of promise that always has to be applied the way we've understood it all across the Christian world, because I don't think it applies that way. And I don't think that that's the way the original scripture writer intended it to be. Again, this was a promise given to exiled people of God from Judah who were going into Babylonian captivity. This was an encouraging letter to say, you know what, God's not through with you yet, though you're going to be judged for 70 years. God is not through with his people. He will be faithful to his people, and he will return them back to a land and and bring them back to where they ought to be. Mm -hmm. And the proper understanding in our own lives is to just at least look at this and say, here God gave a promise, and he fulfilled that promise, and that we can count on him uh, for those promises that do apply to us, that he will fulfill those as well. And and you're right, Andy, and that's exactly what's helpful about this, is that we have the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the story is, is that God did bring his people back. Nehemiah came back with part of the exiles and, and, and built the walls again in Jerusalem. And so we have the rest of the story that God did 70 years later fulfill his promise. And he, he answered that prophe- prophecy literally, directly. And, and I think that that ought to encourage us that even when we pray, if we pray specific prayers, God will give specific answers. When there are specific promises that are given to us in the Bible, that are directly for us, even today, God will give us uh, direct fulfillment of those promises, either in this life or in the life to come. Amen. Well, I want to move on to another verse, and this is one I see often um, in among athletes and, and people in sports, and, and sometimes you see it in other performance-based uh, uh, professions and, and activities, but that's Philippians 4.13. Mm-hmm. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a great verse that is. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it is used all over the place. And, and I think that people need to understand that even in a general sense, uh, the Bible promises that he will give strength to his people. Uh, in fact, even uh, through the Old Testament, I love the verse, it says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And, and just abiding in Christ, uh, living joyfully in Christ, is a way to give us supernatural strength to get through horrible trials, horrible mm-hmm. um, valleys that we can sometimes face. And, of course, I, I know some of that from firsthand experience. And, and the joy of the Lord is is a powerful thing to give us the strength that we need. And so, and Paul's, Paul here is, is echoing those, those sentiments, those ideas. But make let's make it clear that we understand the full context of what Paul's talking about here. In Philippians 4, he's talking to the Philippian church, and, and of course they were worried and concerned about God meeting their needs. They didn't have a lot of money, but they were very generous people, And but but they they wanted to have some reassurance that God was hadn't left them, hadn't abandoned them, that they were going to provide for them. Of course, Paul gives much of that in Philippians 4. They often struggled with anxiety over this, and this is why Paul talks about, hey, whatever is noble and true and right and excellent and praiseworthy, think about those things, and the God of peace will be with you. you know, don't be anxious about anything, he said. But in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And, and of course, so he's he's teaching them here about what it means to be joyful in Christ, to abide in Christ. And in that particular context, he talks about contentment. 
mm-hmm. being content being content in Christ. And and of course he discusses his own life there as a testimony that he has learned the secret of contentment, whether he has times of great blessing or abundance, or he's going through times of great physical uh, need or want. He's learned the secret of contentment, and that secret of contentment has to do with the fact that he can do anything, you know, whether in great times of of glory or times of great tribulation, he can still function and do all things in life through the strength that God gives him. And of course, that strength is the strength to be content mm-hmm. and to and to and to have that level headedness and that contentedness and that joy. That's that's what Paul's talking about here. This is not necessarily a verse that we take out of context. And of course, in my book, I use the idea of of maybe someone standing up and and singing a solo in church. You know, of course, God gives us strength to do those kinds of things. But this verse is more specifically talking about the strength to be content in life, and not necessarily the strength to perform. You know, something uh, a spiritual gift, so to speak. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com support. Moving along, um, another one that we both have, have written on is Matthew eighteen twenty. Uh, I see this one. I, I used to see it more than I do. I, it's just different circles I, I, I run in now. But for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And this this verse is uh, is one that I think that most Christians have heard tossed around the church like popcorn quite mm-hmm. often, especially when it comes to the context of prayer. Um, I've heard it mostly spoken and used in, in prayer meetings or in worship services yeah. where where we kind of invoke this promise um, as we go into worship that God's presence is going to be with us. Well, there's a lot of other verses in Psalms and, and in the Psalms and in the hymnities, you know, that, that promise God's presence amongst his people, mm. especially when they come together and worship. Right. It really solicits this, a, an emotional response. Especially, like it you is. mentioned, the worship service. Yeah, and I think that you know, again, it's there's nothing wrong with uh, with reminding us uh, as people, as God's people, that God is with us, especially mm-hmm. as data for corporate worship. But but this verse is not the best verse to remind us of that, and the reason why is because this verse is specifically talking about church discipline and. You have to read, again, the whole paragraph, the whole context, the whole chapter, the whole point of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is addressing the issue of sin, interpersonal sin between believers and sin in the church. And and he sets forth a pattern of how to deal with this. And, and of course, we, have you, as you read that, beginning in verse 15, you know, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to keep it in the smallest possible circle so that it's not an issue that spreads or to, to clear up any misunderstandings that could happen. You try to keep it in that yeah. way. But if that, if that brother or sister doesn't listen to you and there's not any reconciliation that is achieved after several attempts, then bring two or three others along that they can be witnesses to this and, and help you with the process of reconciling and reasoning together. And, and, and if the unrepentant person refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And, of course, now what, what we're describing here is the process of church discipline. Mm-hmm. And, 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 of course, then at that point, you tell it to the church, and then the church has an opportunity to reach out to that brother or sister that remains unrepentant. And then Jesus said if, if even after those attempts um, they refuse to come to repentance, then treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which is the idea of making a formal uh, declaration that this person, by their unrepentant sin, has excluded themselves, and we are formally excluding them um, from the list of those in this church who are who are those who are covenanted to be 
um, followers of Christ, you know, in other words, membership, in other words, right. if you want to say that in short. Um, so we're basically excluding this person from membership in the body of Christ. Um, and, of course, that's a difficult thing to do. These are very sensitive subjects, but they must be done, and I want to make that clear. Mm-hmm. And I think the church today is weak because we haven't followed the Scriptures in this the way we ought. Uh, but right there in the middle of all of this is this wonderful promise. And, of course, the promise is that Jesus is saying, if you do these things that I'm telling you, to how to address sin, if you follow them the way I've ordained you to follow them, you can rest assured that where two or three are gathered, and of course, again, the old Hebrew principle was that it need, you needed to have a you know a couple witnesses in order to establish the judicial aspects of any matter. And of course, where two or three are gathered, you can rest assured that in that judicial process, there I am in your midst. In other words, when the church needs to take a stand on sin when it comes to matters of right and wrong, and actually make a right judgment on matters of sin, they can rest assured that Christ's presence himself is there to bring blessing and and to affirm what they are doing, if it is indeed based on the truth of God's Word. Mm-hmm. And, and, and his blessing is there. It's a it's, so that's the right context for yeah. where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. Right. And it's interesting that um, that whole process itself is often misused uh, as far as <laughs> yeah. its uh, uh, scriptural implications. Or, or I would say even neglected, you know. And right. And I think it's misunderstood. Uh, I think that people need to do a better job of understanding. And I say this as a as this is kind of an in-house discussion amongst us Christians. I think we Christians have to do a better job of understanding what the Bible teaches with how to be a follower of Christ and, mm-hmm. and what it means what it means to deal with sin and how we've died to sin and how we can't live in it any longer. And right. you know, and I think that it's it's necessary for the sake of the reputation of Christ and his church that we be very serious, much more serious about pursuing godliness and holiness. You know, obviously covering all this in a spirit of grace. Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, if there's anyone who, who wants to preach grace, I, I really think we have to be preaching grace, grace, grace. But at the same time, it's not a grace that is devoid of truth. Jesus was right. was the perfect balance of grace and truth, as John tells us in John 1. And so the Church ought to embody the same attitude of preaching the truth about about sin and yet preaching the truth about grace that covers sin equally side by side. Right. Well, I was thinking, I, I think there's two big ways that it's misused. And I think you were going with uh, maybe the um, lack of discipline amongst churches. Churches are kind of reluctant to engage in church discipline. Uh-huh. And the other method I'm thinking of, of how this is misused is when a, a public figure comes out and does something wrong or teaches something wrong. And then uh, someone else who's more discerning will publicly expose that, that error and oftentimes believers will come and say, well, did you go to them personally before you wrote your article or you came on your radio show or whatnot? And did you handle that one-on-one first or are you just jumping on them right away? Well, I think it depends, again, there on the context. I mean, right. if, if, the, if the teacher is, is throwing it out there at the public discourse lever, letter, you know, level, then I, then I think that it, it can... You know, a public sin, as First Corinthians five teaches us, a public sin deserves a public response. Exactly. Right. And so, you know, this is the context of Matthew eighteen is you know, if your brother sins against you, I mean, it's, it's dealing a little bit more within a personal sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there are other passages of scriptures that talk about how we should deal with public sin, and they should again be weaved together and understood together, so we can use with discernment our best knowledge about how to handle every situation because situations are different. Yeah. Um but but if there is a person who stands up and publicly teaches something that is false, then there is absolutely no problem I believe with having a public response with what is true. Right. Right. Well, I have another verse out of Matthew. Uh this one I I see more from non-believers or uh cultural Christians. Uh you see it from more from the world, but 
Matthew 7, 1 says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Mm-hmm. Well, people have used that, as I say, and I quote Mark Dever here, as a, uh, as a shield for sin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they basically hide behind that verse and say, well, you know, you have no right to talk to me about my behavior or my way of life because you yourself, you know, are no better. And yeah. and who are you to judge me? I mean, and, and I think it totally misses the the context of what Jesus is talking about here. I mean, this is found in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus's primary teaching on what it means to be a follower of Christ that pursues holiness out of reverence for God, mm-hmm. and what it means to live in the kingdom differently than in the world that has fallen today. And I think that uh, that context is so very important, because instead of seeing this as something that someone could hold up to excuse themselves from judgment, this is actually a verse that I think really ought to be remembered as that which is found in the the whole Sermon on the Mount about holiness. Mm -hmm. So all that to say is that if you have to, you have to read the whole context of this verse. Jesus is talking about the idea of hypocrisy. He goes on and says, you know, how is it that you can look at the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that is in your own eye? So he's kind of saying, hey, listen, if you judge, you need to understand that that same measure of judgment will be back on you. And of course, the people that he was addressing were, I think, the Pharisees, who basically um, were very critical and judgmental of other people, but they themselves were doing the very same things that they were accusing others of and pointing out. And so in that sense, Jesus is attacking the idea of judgment out of hypocrisy. He is not in any way saying that we have no right to judge out of hand on moral issues or that we have no right to hold one another accountable to to a life of holiness or or to or to make moral judgments in the church when sin happens in the church and and so I think that we need to understand what the whole Bible teaches about the idea of judgment and, right. and what it means to, what it means to be a discerning uh, Christian who is seeking to live faithfully and of course even in Galatians six Paul said hey you know. If you see someone who's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. The idea being that we have an obligation to each other. Mm-hmm. When we see a brother or sister involved in a sin, we have an obligation to go alongside, not not out of you know arrogance, but in humility, come alongside and help them. I mean, I, as a believer, and I think you would agree with me on this too, Andy, mm-hmm. as a believer, if if I have something in my life that I am living that is not God-honoring, I would want another Christian, especially someone who knew me, you, loved me, I would want them to come up to me and say, hey, Eric, I'm, I'm noticing something in your life that may not be honoring to God. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, would want, I would want them to tell me that, you know, because I, I, of all things, I want to honor Christ in my uh-huh. life. And so, but, so, but if I said, well, you know what, judge not, lest you be judged, then that actually shows a little bit more about the condition of my heart yeah. than than anything else. If yeah. I use that wrong, if I use that passage wrongly. Yeah. Amen. Romans eight twenty eight. Now this is a verse you know, I've used myself and I think it can be used kind of the way it's supposed to be used, but it's easy to, to uh, fall into error with it. Uh, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. It's a it's a great promise, isn't it? Yeah, it kind of goes back with the Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. And, it, it really way. it really is, and and I think, and I think in many ways this is a this can be understood in a broad sense. I do believe that God does take terrible circumstances in our life and can bring about His goodness in a way that that He is ultimately glorified, and mm-hmm. and that's there's no question in in my mind that this verse can be understood that way. Um, but at the same time, I think the greater and the best understanding of how to, what this verse is aiming at is found in the very next verse, in verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And so I think what the, the better understanding of all this is that God is 
working these trials, these great triumphs and these horrible trials in our life, and he's somehow sovereignly weaving them together in such a way that the greatest good is going to be accomplished in our life through them. And Mm -hmm. that greatest good is seen in becoming more like Jesus Christ, you know, so it's actually a verse about spiritual growth and Christ-likeness and, and what it means that God weaves circumstances in our life to bring us more into the character of his Son. And so, but the problem is, is that the way that this verse is often misused, and again, remind ourselves here, we need to remind ourselves that this is a promise for Christians, you know, for those, you know, <laughs> that love God. And, and so this is not something... That is a promise that can be tossed around, you know, to to even an unbeliever because if they haven't truly, if they don't truly love God, if they are not the called one or one of the called ones according to His purpose here in this as this verse so states, then then this is not a verse for them, mm-hmm. at least at least not yet. But but here I, I think this is a verse that Christians can take hope in that God is going to work things together for good, but make sure now that we define good on God's terms and not our own terms. We don't want to import our own definition of what we think good ought to look like. Right. Very important. For our life, uh, again, that's almost similar, like you said, to the Jeremiah 29 promise. Mm-hmm prosperity, that good, that future, you know, that's going to be awesome. And we import our own definition, our own timeline, our own understanding of what that ought to look like for us. And then we hold God responsible to fulfill that. And and I think that we need to understand that his ways are higher than our ways. His, yeah. and, and there are times when what we think is a terrible tragedy ends up being um, an incredible moment of blessing that will come into our life and that God actually uses to shape us and equip us for future ministry. Mm-hmm. I think that I think we need to remember that even the darkest hours are part of God's training. It's part of teaching us what it means to abide in Christ. It's part of what God uses to, to change us into Christ-likeness, because not too many of us would say, you know what, when times were going great in my life, that's when I was growing most. No, we usually say, when things were going the hardest in my life, that's when I found myself really growing, and I think that this verse really is a nice dovetail into that idea. Yeah, yeah. And I want to go back to uh, how you you added in verse 29 in there. I think that was so enlightening. It's so it, it, it's not uncommon when you face verses that are used and you know not exactly as the author intended that just reading that next verse can often do so much to enlighten the verse in question. Yeah. It can be as simple as that. And of course, mm-hmm. if you listen to the Standard Reason radio show that Greg Kugel uh, puts on, his one of his yeah. famous lines is, is, "Don't just read a Bible verse." You know. Yeah, never read a Bible verse. It's you know, and, it, and it's the idea of of read more, read, read, read before and after the next verse, the yeah. paragraph. You know, the book, the chapter. You know, the whole idea there is is that one verse pulled and plucked out of context can be misused. And in my book, uh, I talk a little bit, Andy, about even how Hitler had pulled uh, some of Jesus's words out of context and used them as a means to basically legitimize his mm-hmm. slaughter of innocent Jews and 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 he took the Jesus's words towards the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and, you know, and he he just had a way of saying, well, uh, see even Jesus said that these Jews are a brood of vipers and he painted a big swath you know, and and, and characterize an entire, you know, ethnic group of people, you know, um, instead of understanding the right context of who Jesus was talking to when he he said that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, very important to keep in mind. Uh, The the next verse I had is one that you mentioned uh, kind of especially poignant to to today, and that's, and I see this a lot with church church growth movements, and I've seen some very... uh, well-known pastors today use it, and that's uh, Proverbs twenty-nine, eighteen, where there is no vision, the people perish. Yeah, it's a it's a common one that we often hear recited, specifically in the King James version, mm-hmm. um, because that's the version that primarily carries that wording. Um, 
and of course, when people hear that, we often import modern day understandings of words. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, where there is no vision, we think oftentimes of you know a corporate vision, a plan for a future, a kind of a you know where there's no vision. We you know churches have mission and vision statements, and right. and, co- and companies have hey here's our vision for who we want to be and who we want to become. Well, that particular verse uh, is not talking about vision in that sense. It's talking about supernatural revelation that that God obviously gave visions and and things to the prophets of the old. And so the idea here is that um, God is the one that brings supernatural revelation to his people. And when there isn't that supernatural revelation, um, the people perish. Or a better translation of it would be where there is no vision or where there is no general revelation or where there is no prophetic revelation, the people cast off restraint. And I think that that that's the best way to understand that verse. And of course, that gives a whole different connotation right. to the verse. It's yeah. not it's not like we're talking about you know poor future planning. If there's no future planning, you're bound to fail. No, this is all about where there is no divine revelation. The people cast off moral restraint. I think we're seeing that in dramatic ways, even in our own country today because of the biblical illiteracy inside and outside the church yeah. i think the moral restraint is is gone is off i mean and people are now calling uh things that were blatant sin before they're calling them right and approving mm-hmm. of them and i mean just the the abortion that's going on the the the, the gay marriage now i mean everything is upside down according yeah. to what the bible really teaches on these subjects and of course it's 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 not surprising that when there is no study, when the Word of God is not being preached, when it's not being understood correctly, when it's not being lived out faithfully, then the people are apt to cast off restraint. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the best way to understand that verse. And, uh, of course, that just you know speaks, I think, to our culture today. Um, we have we have so much to discover in the Bible, and it has so much to teach us. But we have to do a little digging, and we can't just look at something at the surface level and think we know what it means. We have yep. to really, we have to spend some time with this. You know, Bible study is not easy, but it can be very rewarding, and it's a depth of of uh, wow, just depth of joy, depth of promises, a depth of of spiritual wisdom that is found in the pages of these books. God gave us this book for us to know who he is and to understand his plan for our life and understand who we are in Christ. And and it's the most valuable resource that we we have spiritually speaking. And so it's just one of those ver- one of those verses that's often misunderstood because it's quickly quoted out of its context and used to fit into a scenario that it never was meant to fit into. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you included this. I, you know, in my own uh, ex- exploration of these verses that are often used, I've, I've kind of tended to avoid Proverbs. Proverbs is uh, especially difficult in my mind because a lot of the stuff doesn't follow a typical context like you would see in, uh, you know, the epistles or, or yeah, the you're gospels. right. <laughs> can be a challenge in interpreting Proverbs because their quips, their sayings, and mm-hmm. then don't always have the context for for every verse that's given there. But one of right. the things since you brought this up, Andy, that's important in understanding how to interpret the Proverbs is that Proverbs are meant to be general principles. They aren't absolute promises on every single proverb. So in the book I talk about you know, training up a child in the way he or she should go, and when he's older, they'll not depart from it. We know that verse. That is a, is a, a proverb that is a general principle, and mm-hmm. it comes from years of observation that, that over time, this has been the observation that is held to be true. But it's not one of those absolute promises that says, okay, if I do this and this and this, if I plug in this formula, then I'm guaranteed to have right. a kid or a daughter that is going to turn out this way, you know, um, and so it's not an absolute promise in that sense. It's more of a general principle 
that comes through a history of observation. And of course, that's why this is part of the sayings of the wise. Right. And just one other comment I had on that verse uh, is that I often see that you'll find people who really have a, a favorite uh, translation of the Bible, and there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. when you start cherry-picking that, well, you know, maybe normally I like the the NASB or the ESV, but this one you have to read it in the King James or whatnot. <laughs> that that can often be problematic as well. Or when, well, it is. And it's even worse when you see they don't necessarily have a consistent translation they use. They just pick which one sounds the best. Well, and that's, yeah, and that's, again, picking and choosing to fit what we think it ought to say according mm-hmm. to how our own agenda wants it to be used. And and that's dangerous. Uh, again, I want to I want to make a statement here that there is no such thing as a perfect translation of the Bible. I mean, translations are are fallible. Um, the original writings of Scripture are infallible, and uh, and I teach that they're inerrant, um, that the Holy Spirit inspired there inspired them without error. And um, and but in that sense, you know, again, we have. Uh, the challenge today of taking the original languages and putting them into our current 21st century languages. And of course, mm-hmm. there's a cultural gaps, there's uh, word changes, you know, how how words kind of can change a little bit. And we I even discussed that in the book, how the word green is different than it was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Today, when you say, let's go green, we know, <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, we know that that's something that has to do with environmental, you know, awareness. But, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people would look at you, you know, and their head would be kind of cocked at you and saying, well, what do you mean, go green? <laughs> that sounds like, you know, uh, something you do at a traffic light, you know? Yeah. So it's just the way that language changes, the way that language is used, and and cultures how they often have evolved over the years, and how and so I think it's very important for us to understand that there there is a great challenge for us sometimes to translate these things in the most accurate language of our day that best fits the language of that day. Mm-hmm. And 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 there are some translations that are better than others. You know, there's different types of translations too. And you know, some translations kind of do a word for word. Some do a phrase for phrase. And then there's the the ones that aren't translations that are just paraphrases. Mm-hmm. And so there's different kinds of things. I think there are some Bibles that are better than others. There's some translations that I would probably avoid. Um, but I think that some of the better ones, as you mentioned, I think the New American Standard Update, I think the ESV is, a, is an excellent translation, um, and there's several others that I could mm-hmm. recommend too. But, but but just keeping in mind that translations, you know, again, are are our attempt to do everything we can to put this in our language, and that will always have some measure of fallibility to it because we're sinners. Right. Right. Now, uh, this this next verse that I came across in your book uh, is one that I remember hearing many, many, many times with a, a ministry that I used to follow when I was first saved back in 99, 2000, 2001, and that is Second Chronicles 7.14. Mm. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will hear the, heal their land. And you hear that especially now in this season of, of the election. It, it comes up a lot. True. And again, there's another example of an Old Testament context that needs to be fully understood so that we can properly apply it mm-hmm. uh, today. And, and of course, that verse was given um, by God to King Solomon. Um, uh, following the dedication of the temple, where uh, what a great moment that was in Israelite history. The kingdom was united at that time. King Solomon, in all of his grandeur, stood, had his hands to heaven, dedicated the temple, basically uh, listed out some of the promises, and, and prayed that God would uh, abide with his people, and that even in those moments when the people would turn from him, that he would... Um, you know, when his judgment would inevitably, inevitably would come, that, that God would hear their prayers that were offered in that place, in the temple, and that he would forgive them. And, of course, one thing that's interesting about this is that 
um, God's promise was that if they did stray and if they did go away from him, that he would actually bring uh, some physical judgment that would come upon the very land itself, the very physical land of Israel in the form of locusts and plagues and pestilences and drought, things that would actually decimate the physical land itself. And uh, so this promise that's given is is one of those wonderful promises that upon their conditional repentance, God promised that not only would he forgive them, um, but he would also restore the physical land that he um, had destroyed via judgment because of their sin. So this was given to the people of Israel. And um, But oftentimes when we hear this verse, we think, okay, well, this, this means as well that God is going to bring a generic revival if indeed we pray this prayer and if we latch onto this promise, he's going to bring a general revival to any place where Christians reside if enough of them are praying this way. Well, mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 a good thing to pray. I mean, it's good for us as Christians to be praying for our leaders, for our government, for this election, for everything that's going on right now in this country, and we should pray for revival, pray for God would heal this land that we live in. But the land we're talking about in this verse is a physical land, whereas oftentimes when we think of the land, we think, God, heal this land, heal this generic country, you know, mm-hmm. this country in the generic sense, we think of it that way, but he's actually talking about the physical land back then. So there's a little bit of a difference in discrepancy in, in what we mean by land, even, uh, between our present-day understanding and what it meant back in that particular verse. So I caution us against using this verse as an absolute promise that guarantees revival in this country if enough Christians are praying. Mm-hmm. Because this was given specifically to Israel uh, upon their violation of the covenant that they had made with God and the judgment that would ensue because of that and the restoration that would have to a physical land once they repented. So it doesn't necessarily mean that if we all fast and pray from now to November 6th that Mitt Romney will get elected? No, it doesn't mean that at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, we don't know who the Lord is going to, you know, obviously uh, um, put in charge over us, and mm-hmm. I believe that God does ordain the governing authorities over us. And, and uh, you know, a, a lot of Christians are distraught today, and I understand why. This is their father's country, their grandfather's country, who fought in the war for this country. It's still the greatest country on the earth. I still right. believe that. Okay. I, w- I would die for this country if if I was asked to do such. Um, but, but keep in mind, this world is not our home. And, um, you know, the Lord could easily be setting up the world system for his return. And, and we ought to kind of live with excitement with regard to that. Yet at the same time, we still should stand for truth, vote according to principles, pray for this country, pray for our leaders. These are all things that the Bible elsewhere tells us to do, mm-hmm. that we should submit to our governing authorities, pray for them. Uh, Paul told Timothy to, to do that, to for pray for those in leadership, you know, even those uh, pray for the king, you know. Yeah. So the so the idea is that we ought to um, we ought to be on our knees, especially right now in this very very critical election, mm-hmm. praying that God's biblical principles will be upheld um, by the elective process that we have. What a great privilege we have as believers in this country to vote, and every Christian should vote. I think we have a moral obligation to do so, and and I think that we have a a wonderful opportunity to shape those and, and, and vote and have a say in those that govern us. And so we should be doing that. But using this verse that you mentioned as the absolute guarantee that if enough of us rally, it's going to actually bring about political change in this country. I think that we would be misusing that verse. Right, right. As long as we're talking elections, I, I just wanted to throw out, if people want to look up a verse, I'm not going to quote it, but I, I've been kind of tongue-in-cheek saying I'm praying uh, Psalm 109.8 for President Obama. So go look that one up. Um, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Again, that's another example of misusing a It's totally taken out of context. And I, I, it, 
<laughs> I admit it up front. But uh, uh, the last one I have for for tonight is First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen, and uh, you quoted just the first part of the verse. I'm going to quote the whole verse, but uh, it says, "No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man." And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. There's a key word in the in what you read there, and that word is temptation. Mm-hmm. And and that is what this verse is talking about. Oftentimes, uh, this this verse is, is um, pulled out of its context, or might I say, the principle behind this verse is pulled out of context and misused. A lot of people will uh, mishear that verse and think that it might just be talking about the general circumstances of life that God would never give us more than we can handle, which I believe, which I teach the opposite. I actually believe that God will give us more than we can handle. And Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 and 9, when he just talks about his ministry in in Asia and how it was so difficult for them that they even despaired of life itself. I mean, obviously God gave them more than they could handle in their own strength. And then he goes on to say, but God did this so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, And so I think that the idea that God can, can won't give us more than we can handle is kind of a half-truth. Um, but the whole truth is that God will not let us be tempted beyond more than we can handle or what we can bear. And that's a truth that he's referring to specifically in that verse, mm-hmm. is that it's talking about temptation, that God will always provide a way out for us so that we would not be overwhelmed by temptation such that the only choice we had was to give into it. Right. And and I think that that is really what Paul is reassuring us there is that God doesn't tempt you. He's not into that business mm-hmm. and he is not going to allow temptation that does come to overtake you or to consume you such that you have only the option of giving in to that temptation. He will not allow that. He will always provide a door. He will always provide a way out. And sometimes the way out of temptation is not to even go into the door where temptation exists. (laughs) And that that comes from years of pastoral experience in in counseling, even college students. You know, it's like, well, you know, I hear that you're you're tempted, you know, all the time, but where are you putting yourself? Are you putting yourself in an environment where you're going to be tempted, or are you staying ten steps back? You know, so mm-hmm. so the idea here, I think, is is more about temptation than it is just the fact that God will give us more than we can handle in life, because I believe He does, and the purpose of that is so that we rely upon Him and not just live life out of the flesh and our own strength and think that we can get along without God. Right. Well said. Well, that's all I had. Uh, I think the timing came out pretty good on that. Cause, great. Know. Well, Andy, it's been a great privilege to talk to you about these about these things, and and hopefully your listeners will be encouraged and edified to to get into the Word of God and study it. And uh, this this Word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It's the agent that God uses to transform our minds and to change us and and how we see our world differently, and how we see our circumstances differently. And so my prayer is that we would all be studying the Word of God together uh, in the context of a believing community, that your listeners would sit under good, sound biblical teaching, and that the church grows and thrives today because the Word of God is being rightly preached and lived out among His people. Right. And I thank you so much for taking some time tonight to to speak to me and to speak to my audience. and. Thank you, Andy. It's a great privilege. God bless your brother and your yeah, ministry. Me too. Well, that wraps up episode 54. Thanks again for listening. You can find show notes, including a detailed outline of the discussion, references to scriptures mentioned in the show, and additional resources, including links to Eric's book and my articles on the scriptures discussed in the show, by going to echozoe.com slash 54. There is also a graphic of the book cover at the site. If you click on that, it will take you to the books page at amazon.com, where you can not only order the book, 
but help Echo Zoe by providing affiliate credit for your purchase. In addition to Eric's book, you can also read my articles on some of those same verses in my Misapplied Scriptures series. Links to that are also at the website. I do recommend the book. Not only does Eric have more wisdom to draw from than I, but he's more interesting to read than I am too. Well, thanks again for listening, and Lord willing, we'll be back again next month for the November episode. 